Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest has been disrupting for over 25 years. He's got extensive startup experience in many countries, U.S., New Zealand, Australia, and Saudi Arabia. Two of these startups achieved over a billion dollar valuation under his watch. In fact, if any of you know this company, he's the founding member of a national New Zealand telecommunication company called Two Degrees Mobile. We're talking to him today because he's disrupting financial services. He and his co-founders are building all the financial products people are familiar with, but in the metaverse, powered by digital assets but also powered outside of the metaverse so people can still partake in the economy. Coming to us live from Austin, Texas, please welcome our disruptor, Niraj Satija, CTO of Lucrisma. Thanks for the wonderful introduction, KJ. <laughs> I, I appreciate all the nice words you said about me, but one of my core beliefs is innovation and disruptive innovation is something that propels the space forward and helps the humanity overall based on how it's applied. And that's what attracted me to your podcast in the first place was that disruption, the word disruption. So thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Well, I have to say that the disruptors that have been on this podcast have all had a vision towards the greater good and you fit within that. And my very first question to you, I ask every disruptor, right? But for you, you've done a lot of innovation, you've done a lot of disruption, right? What is your main number one ingredient for disruptive innovation? Without any doubt, it is education and the urge to demystify a lot of these concepts that are opaque, sometimes deliberately kept opaque, so make them transparent for the regular folks to understand. And my latest and current startup, Lucresma, has its genesis from the same ingredient. So I'm going to quickly narrate a story Please. Uh, from last year. So I got two kids, both teenagers now, and any parent who wants their kids to learn some of these life skills, I wanted both my kids to, to invest in cryptocurrencies and also understand the value of financial discipline, the discipline of regular investment, the discipline of understanding these financial concepts. So I looked around to see where can I turn to, which application or which website can I turn to, to educate them on some of these concepts. And I didn't find any. I found some companies that were doing that were doing play to earn games or some of these interesting formats, but they were still complex and overwhelming for teenagers, but also people who are not very familiar with these terms to understand. That's what triggered the genesis of CRISPR. But throughout my career, 
the urge to educate and demystify some of these complex concepts for my customers has been the trigger for a lot of the innovation I've done. Right. Well, and that has a long-term survival concept. It's long-reaching, is education, right? Yeah. yeah. I find it very interesting, and it's very true. We have these complex and overwhelming data systems, training on financial systems, finance, economics, period. And you mentioned deliberately kept opaque. And that's very true. It's very easy to insert the latest fad that might be good for a vested interest when financial literacy is kept opaque deliberately, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have a large generation, millennials, and then we have other generations like your children that are, I forget what generation that is, right? <clears throat> that are coming up that overwhelmingly need education in finances and economics, right? If our economy and if our world is going to be projected forward, <laughs> right? Absolutely. What do you feel like, you know, you? we're going to talk about putting financial services and products and digital assets in the metaverse, Right. But let's look at the status quo right now, yeah. right? That is deliberately kept opaque or very confusing, a lot of terminology and jargon people don't understand. Tell me the status quo that Lucrisma is going to resolve or you know, educate to resolve. Like, tell me what it looks like now. So, KJ, the current status is in terms of financial services specifically, it's firmly entrenched in the web 2.0 world. So the web has transitioned from the 70s and 80s when the web 1.0 came along and you saw a lot of these static websites come up. And then towards the 90s and early 2000s is when the web 2.0 came along where businesses sprung up that offered account management capabilities to its users. That's when a lot of these successful companies that you are, you and I are familiar with, the Amazons and the Ubers and the banking, e-banking systems came along, right? A lot of these platforms, while they allow for the end user to have a degree of freedom and autonomy, they are still very centralized in, in their nature. When I say centralized, there is usually a middleman or a number of middlemen in between the customer and the service provider. These middlemen are sometimes a legal requirement, but most often it's just done to facilitate the trade and make it easy for the end customers because once again, the education is not up to, the financial literacy is not up to the level which would enable these guys, the end users to, to understand these concepts. Now, because of these middlemen, each transaction takes time. It's error prone because most of these middlemen are usually people. So there is human error. And also it's time consuming, right? Because when you add these layers, everybody has to do their process to approve or review them. So it's slow, error prone and expensive. Also, a lot of it is bound for good or bad by a lot of regulatory landscape, which makes it, which safeguards the end customers in some aspects, but also makes it very regimented and restricted in what can be done. As a result, you'll find that there are either these massive companies with trillions of dollars of assets in the management, 
likes of Fidelity, likes of BlackRock, like, likes of Merrill Lynch, etc., or more smaller niche players that are restricted to a certain region because taking a regulatory compliance for each region, for each state, for each country takes a lot of effort and money. So you'll find a small, you'll, a small number of these multinationals that are ubiquitous. You'll find them everywhere you go, offering almost all kinds of financial products under the sun. Or the second category is the smaller, very niche, very focused, but sometimes very restricted to a certain region companies. In the last maybe 30 to 40 years, these companies have become, they have embraced technology. They have become more aware of their customers' needs, and they've done a fantastic job of marketing their products to people in a way that makes sense for everybody, right? So it's custom, it's tailored and personalized for each customer because there's huge amounts of data they're aggregating. I will say this as an interjection. They do understand how to communicate in layman's terms in their marketing. Absolutely. So Not, not so, in the other aspects of it, but they have figured that out. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's at a high level, that's the status quo. And a lot of these companies are now, I know you asked about the status quo, but I'm just going to take it one step further and yeah. say that a lot of these companies are also trying to pursue efficiencies and innovation to keep themselves competitive and keep themselves ahead of the curve. However, the model, the business model still remains that man in the middle paradigm that I spoke about, right? So there are still a layer or a number of layers between the customer and the product, the financial product that they're offering. So that the core, the crux of that problem still remains, right? You, you can have efficiencies around the workflows, but you know the workflow itself is fundamentally centralized in nature. Yeah, so what is the problem with it being centralized? The problem is that they generate a lot of data, which makes them make these companies incredibly powerful and it gives them visibility of the you know, they get an idea of the entire market. They can break it down by segments and micro segments, and they know demographics, they know what kind of products sell, and they can do an incredibly good job of offering the products that they that each one would need. And which is all good, right? You need to be offered all these products and services, but the controls remain with that centralized entity, which allows them to jack up the prices when they feel like it allows them to have access to more of the customer's data than they need to and not reveal or disclose how that data is being at times being sold or federated and shared with third parties including some marketing agencies and whatnot right that control is not with the customer so as as the end customer my data my likes, my preferences, my current portfolio is at the mercy of, of this business, right? That has all the control. So it's a lopsided equation. Yes, it is a lopsided equation. And with decentralization happening, right? It's happening because there is this pent up demand and awareness of consumers that I don't like being controlled like this. No longer is it okay. And I know more now prices are getting jacked up. My data is being shared. The data is not mine. And we're dealing with the very livelihood 
of these people's lives, right? Absolutely. How is this innovation of the metaverse? Let's talk about that, right? Putting financial products and digital assets into the metaverse. How does that solve this centralization problem? Before I answer the question from the metaverse perspective, I'm just going to take a minute and explain how decentralization as a concept is going to solve a lot of these problems I just spoke about. Let's do it. So decentralization basically means that there is no centralized entity and two peers, the customer and the service provider can deal with each other directly without the need of a middleman. And each person decides, each customer decides who gets to access their data, how much of that data needs to be accessed so the control is firmly with them. That obviously brings a lot of responsibility to the end customer in that they, they are now their own bank or their own financial services company, right? So they they're have their to, own CFO. <laughs> they're their own CFO, right? So they have to have the discipline of managing these assets, these financial assets from as an investment, as a security. So they need to make sure that they're taking all precautions to not share their private keys with somebody else. So there's a whole lot of education and discipline that is now the responsibility of each customer. Previously, this control was with the bank who or the financial company that, that was responsible for storing and securing each customer's data, making sure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands and it's compliant, it's, it can be audited, all those things that the, that the regulatory landscape wanted them to do. So it's a change in paradigm. And this, the big benefit of this changed paradigm, KJ, is that this can now enable even the small investors, even people with, that are not investing millions of dollars, people that are not accredited, to get equal opportunities to some of these investment events that they previously, or in the centralized world, would have no access to. So right. it, it basically levels up the playing field. It allows everybody to have an opportunity to partake in the new economy. Right. Well, so that's that's what I'm sorry. Wait, these these newer investors or smaller investors is an emerging class of investors that is hugely growing. And there's a pent up demand to get out of the constraints of the middleman. Absolutely. And you'll see a lot of this happening over the course of uh, several years now. Earlier, when you saw these IPOs come up, you would see that there were conditions on who could invest. And usually it's the SECs and the regulatory authorities of that region deciding that this asset is risky. So we are only going to allow accredited investors or institutional investors to invest here, right? Because the assumption was that the common man who's playing with smaller sums of money doesn't have the uh, tools and the financial intelligence to to take this risk, right? Now, that <laughs> yeah, has been taken this, out of the equation. Right? Yes. Well, you know, it's, it, 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 I laugh because it is very ironic. You're not smart enough to know this. 
It's the old adage from the mental health field 70 years ago that you're not smart enough to understand your own mind. So you're not. Exactly. Don't look there, right? Yeah. Don't look yeah. at your finances. You're not smart enough. Don't look at exactly. your mind. You're not smart enough. Like, yeah. Right. Right. So that's what decentralization is changing. And don't get me wrong. There's lots of lots of things that are still emerging. It's a very still very early on in this space. The regulatory landscape is becoming clearer. I'm sure you've come across what Senator Cynthia Loomis revealed a couple of days ago on the proposal that they're working on. So a lot of that is yet to mature. The technologies are yet to mature. But conceptually, the idea of decentralization is so compelling. In my opinion, it's here to stay. In my opinion, it's going to be it's going to be supported by a lot of good technology, a lot of good tools that would enable everybody to make their own investment decisions, to have their own security in place to safeguard their assets and be better informed about their opportunities. Right. Well, most people don't know this, but legislation happens when it doesn't happen proactively. It happens reactively based on what the masses and the court of public opinion want. Right? Exactly. Yes. And so yes. this particular development you're talking about is coming about because this pent up demand is being expressed and has been yeah. expressed. Yeah. What happens to the middleman? Because every time there's disruption yeah. and innovation, there is a whole value network that gets restructured. And typically, there is a middleman that gets yeah. replaced, right? What happens to the middleman at this point? Right. So KG, I'd like to answer that question differently. So instead of focusing on the changed workflow, so going from a man in the middle approach to a decentralized approach and what happens to the middleman, I'm going to tell you some of the needs of this new space, right? Which I think the traditional middleman is ideally place to take advantage of and offer those services in the new world. I'm glad you so, I'm glad you're you're taking it in this direction because there is a misconception, even a delusion, that yep. those middlemen in many of these cases are going to be completely displaced when actually they have a very strong role in the new paradigm. Absolutely. So in the last several decades, these middlemen, I don't know of any other term to describe them, but these financial brokers have developed a lot of in-depth understanding of the customer's needs of the of also the regulations and the law of the land that they need to comply with, right? So in the new world, they can leverage that education, they can leverage that awareness of the law to build businesses that would help these customers in the decentralized world right so they can come up with applications that will allow people to invest in opportunities in a compliant manner they can come up with applications that would educate them on the do's and don'ts they can develop applications and businesses to provide portfolio services and provide good analytics based recommendations and I see a lot of that's already happening. I see a lot of businesses that are that have sprung up in the last just in the last year or so, last couple of years, that are providing portfolio services, that are providing analytic services, that are providing services to on the regulatory landscape. So a lot of that's started happening, but like I said, it's early days. And these brokers, these middlemen can still come and set up businesses that would work 
in that decentralized world where all this knowledge of the customer and the law and the regulations can be applied in a way that makes it more, I guess, fairer to both sides on the in the decentralized world. Right. So there's still a consulting role. There is still a consulting role. Yes. So we have this decentralization and we have this reinvention, I would say, of the middlemen. And we have this consumer class that yeah. has is rising, that's had pent up demand to take responsibility and control of their own financial well-being, right? Right. Can we go into the metaverse now? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. I've been <laughs> <laughs> Let's all talk right. about this because this I had to I had to explain all that just so that I can do justice to what's coming now, right? Yeah. Exactly, and, because uh, listen, what you said is like great, good. End of podcast. Good. In yeah. Innovation. <laughs> but now we're adding the metaverse to that, yes. which yes. is like a virtual world, right? Exactly, exactly. How does that work with these right. financial products and digital assets? Right. So firstly, KJ, metaverse is not new. Metaverse that is currently being built, the visual element of it has existed for several years, right? So games like Roblox and Minecraft and all these immersive, lifelike, three-dimensional games gave you the flavor that the new metaverse is trying to give right which is so in these games that i just spoke about they were offering the users the experience of being in the middle of that world in that virtual world right so they could look around in a three-dimensional reality they could explore things and and really play within the rules of that ecosystem whether it's roblox or whatever and get that experience like they were in the center of that universe right the new metaverse that's being built is the difference between roblox and this is that this is going to be built on top of a blockchain so the decentralization aspect that we just spoke about is at the foundation of this new metaverse visually so instead of viewing the internet as a collection of different websites different apps different microsites the metaverse envisions a virtual world, which is interactive, it's three-dimensional, it places each user at the center of that universe and allows them to work, allows them to socialize, allow, allows them to party inside of that space. And more importantly, because it's built on the blockchain technology, it allows them to take their assets with them wherever they go. If they buy, an in-game asset, let's say an NFT, they would take that with them to wherever they go, right? Which is unlike what Roblox and Minecraft were offering. When you were playing Roblox and you won some badges or avatars, if you disabled your Roblox account, that was it, that was gone, right? Whereas in this new metaverse, you get to take that asset with you because it's yours, it's, it's owned by you. So there is an element of ownership. There's also an element of, <clears throat> in addition to the unified experience, the visual experience, the immersive experience that Metaverse is offering, there is an element of a real world in that new Metaverse because you have that underlying data foundation that guarantees ownership, guarantees safety and trust and choice. Now. <clears throat> 
while we've spoken about the ownership, we I also want to touch on a couple of other characteristics of the metaverse. The new metaverse is going to be characterized by the creator's economy. So you'll see a lot of 3D spatial artists, game designers, a lot of visual designers that would come and create these worlds that would characterize that metaverse. The creators, whether they are producing art of a visual type or audio, whatever it is that they're producing, would then be incentivized for their creation by people who utilize that space or listen to their creations. So there's going to be a, a more fairer creator's economy created. There's also going to be a new industry that's going to emerge, which is going to be, I call it the material economy. And the reason I call it the material economy is because it relies on material layers. This company that's doing fantastic job with these sneakers, right? So they've basically allowed for a customer to buy their sneakers and they have those transmitters inside of the sneakers, which allows for this pair of shoes to have a digital twin inside of the metaverse. So when, if I wear those shoes and I move around, my avatar would move around in a similar way and there will be i guess a communication between the material and the digital to capture my movement to capture my motion in ways that have not been done before so it's definitely getting into that more realistic experiential world now where lucrisma comes into this is I'm going to connect this to my research last year when I was trying to educate my kids and I could not really find anything. I saw Metaverse as a perfect opportunity for me to create this company where all these financial products and services that we want to offer, our customers can go and play with them. They can interact with them. They can really understand what a Web3 wallet looks like. How can they add a Bitcoin or an Ethereum or any of the crypto of their choice to their wallet? How can they stake their cryptocurrencies to get a certain rate of return? How can they invest in some of these complex financial derivatives that earlier were very opaque and overwhelming, but now they can not only read about it or watch an explainer video, they can see a product model. They can play with that product model and understand these concepts like never before. It's also a personal conviction, which I have carried all through my career about keeping things transparent, about opening these concepts up. So the customers really know what they are, what they are investing in or what they're trying to use. Again, from personal experience, that urge or that principle has paid me in ways that I could not even imagine because it has developed a certain degree of trust in the business, which contributes to that stickiness. And overall, when you build trust with your customers, when they know that you're not trying to, they're not, you're not trying to keep things opaque or hidden from them, and there is more transparency, they stick to that business they also have the viral impact of bringing their friends and family into that so personally i've gained a lot by following that conviction and this is what we have taken into lucrisma as well so we are building for all the products that we do we are building these lifelike immersive interactive models 
where customers can come in and truly understand and maybe that product is not for them right mm -hmm. and we'd be happy for them to reach that conclusion and not be burnt out right but maybe they can explore something else and find something that is more conducive to their investment spectrum so you're making it a new way of learning this is immersive learning that you're also disrupting right yes so i want to be clear we are not trying to be an e-learning platform so we're not gonna just educate on every topic under the sun we're gonna focus on our products we're gonna focus on the investment in the decentralized world and we're going to focus on what relates to our line our suite of financial services right makes sense and when we're talking about investments in this decentralized world and you have this immersive experience where people can learn and get educated right what about those that are not comfortable with the metaverse yet that's a great question kj i belong to a generation where <laughs> when we were growing up we did not have the oculuses and the all these contraptions that have that are now available so when i first put an oculus on it was it took a deliberate effort to get comfortable with it right to wear it for hours every day and maybe it's a generational thing maybe it's a personal thing i don't know but i know for a fact that not everybody is gonna be wearing those devices, whether it's those Oculus like glasses or the wristbands or the gloves, not everybody is going to spend their day wearing those devices for hours every day. So at Lucrisma, we wanted to ensure that those people can also partake in the metaverse economy and vice versa. People who are in the metaverse can partake in the economy that's the real world economy. So a lot of this is what drove us to build our bridge, our technology that enables us to create a bridge between the different metaverses on one hand and the real world outside. So people who are, metaverse is poised to be a $13 trillion economy by, if you go by a recent study by Citibank and Goldman Sachs. And they also said there's gonna be about 5 billion engaged users in the metaverse right so a significant part of the global population is going to exactly leverage or utilize the metaverse in some shape or format so for an economy of that scale you need to have you need to have somebody who's building those products natively which is what we are doing we're building all these financial services natively for the metaverse but also allows people who are on the outside of that metaverse economy to leverage those investment opportunities. Likewise, as I mentioned, people who are in the metaverse, who are very comfortable with these devices and who are using metaverse for work or for social purposes or whatever, for them to not miss out on the opportunities in the real world, right? So we created this bridge, which allows a customer to create a unified identity. And it allows them to say, okay, I've got a few Bitcoin in my wallet. I also got a, an NFT in this metaverse, and I'm interested in buying a parcel of digital land in the second metaverse. So we allow, by the virtue of this unified identity, to this customer to aggregate their assets in their wallet, which is you know whatever Bitcoin they have, that NFT in metaverse one, combine them into a portfolio 
and then use the power of this aggregated portfolio to maybe take mortgage out uh, for this parcel of land they're, they're, they're trying to buy in the second metaverse. So that's the bridge I talk about. It's a bridge between different metaverses as well as with the outside world. It allows people to aggregate their portfolios so they can invest in other ecosystems and take full leverage off of the aggregated portfolio to take out loans, to take out mortgages, to invest and get the maximum out of that combined asset that they have, that they own. Yeah, you're really turning the industry on its head here from a very siloed, centralized financial system to a decentralized and able to participate in other ecosystems, financial service network. That's a great way to put it. Yes. So we are trying to make this work for the customer. So in this decentralized world, they are going to have full control of their portfolio. It doesn't matter if some of their portfolio is in Metaverse 1, some of it is in Metaverse 2, some of so it may be spread all over, but they are able to combine that. They are able to take full advantage of the assets that may be outside of that ecosystem. Yes. Who are the early adopters of this? So we're finding that a lot of companies that are now moving from the DeFi space, so the decentralized finance space, are showing interest in partnering or even developing some of their own products in this space because they have built a lot of, they've built some compelling businesses where they have offered decentralized financial services to their customers. They've offered passive income generation opportunities to their customers, but they have not done that in a way that allowed them to take full advantage of the different ecosystems that that existed outside of their chains or existed in the metaverses. So we're finding that a lot of these established DeFi and also centralized finance players are showing interest. And we've had some interesting conversations with a few of them. We're also finding that as digital land becomes more useful, so earlier people were just buying a piece of land in a metaverse like Decentraland because it was novelty, it was cool, it was, but they didn't really know what to do with that always, right? But they have now realized that the metaverse is where people are going to work in the future. This is where people are going to hang out and socialize with their with their network in the future. So they are now building their office spaces and hangouts and lounges and all kinds of replicas of these meeting places that exist in the real world. They're creating them inside of the metaverse. And for that, they need space, right? And so a lot of those visionaries are now saying, okay, I want to buy a piece of land, but it's become so expensive, I cannot afford it, but I do have this few Bitcoin, a few Ether or whatever. Can we take some mortgage out? Yeah. Right. So these are the early adopters. Now, tell me who are the ones that are the most reticent to change at this point? That's it. That's another good question. I think people who are are so dominant in the old world, right? They are, it's not like they are they are reluctant to change. It's more like they are finding it hard to change because the impact of this is so disruptive, 
And I'm going to take another example here, right? So I know of this massive traditional financial company that has this entire team whose job it is to do an identity validation on a new customer. So this team, and it's a big team, all they do is when a new customer comes along, they capture their details, they get their details, their driver's license, their passport, whatever, and they put that through their system to validate and not just validate on the identity, but also validate on how much credit or how much, yeah, how the credit worthiness for them. All of that's gonna go away in the new world, right? So they that team would need to be repurposed because now in the new world, there are the onus of getting that identity validated is on the end customer. The business would still need to provide a method for the end customer to get their identity validated, but onus now shifts to the end customer. So a lot of these teams that were created earlier would now need to be repurposed because the impact of this technological change is so disruptive that it's taking that middleman out, right? It's taking them out. So to answer your question, a lot of the traditional financial services companies, established companies, I believe they understand the benefits of this new world order. <laughs> they understand the benefits of this new, te new technology and they want to embrace that change, but they are embracing the change in a way that makes sense for them, keeping their constraints in mind, resourcing or technology. They've got a bunch of legacy systems. To me, where I stand, I understand and respect that position. It's easier for a startup with no baggage, with no legacy apps to do whatever, right? And embrace this new world order. But for more traditionally in systems that are or businesses that were that were had their workflows and had their uh, resourcing aligned with that workflow, it's not going to be easy. So I appreciate that. But I believe the survivors of this technological and this paradigm change, the survivors are those that are going to embrace the best of the decentralized offering in a way that allows them to do their, to have their business while keeping the best interest of their customers at heart. Yes. And this whole decentralization and the prediction of billions of people that will be participating on this, how do you foresee this changing the industry and the way it operates in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Massive changes. I went to my local bank the other day and just having a chat to my tenor <laughs> and she was like, you are my first customer of the day. And it was like 11 a.m. And it's not unusual. People are no longer flocking to these, to the traditional brick and mortar branches of financial services companies or banks or some of these institutions. So you can see that happening already. People are very comfortable with doing their mobile banking or online banking, and they're very comfortable now with doing a lot of this decentralized finance, a lot of this crypto finance. I see this trend getting stronger, especially with the advent of the metaverse, because it's, like I said, experience that the metaverse would be able to offer is so lifelike that once you have tasted that experience, it's going to be disappointing for you to turn to your phone or go to a brick and mortar store. And it's not that you will not have the human interaction that you get in a like a brick and mortar store. 
when you go in the metaverse, you would still have the ability to interact with the avatar of your banker or your financial advisor, whoever, right? You'll still get that, that human connection and it will be in the comforts of your office or your home. So I see this trend exploding. I see this new method of um, embracing the financial services growing exponentially in the years to come. Yes. And I see the decentralization causing people to be more responsible and d demand to be educated yes. on their finances so that they can be successful. I think sometimes it's been too easy to abdicate responsibility yes. to the middlemen, which honestly puts so much pressure on the middlemen and has increased the regulations a thousandfold, right? Yes, yes. What are the challenges that Lucrisma has right now? So like any startup, we are trying to raise some funds and the market downturn that's proving to be a little challenging, but that is a challenge for us. Never a dull moment, is it? Yeah, there's <laughs> never a dull moment. So that combined with the, with the, because we are trying to have Lucresma operate in all the regions of the world, obviously in a staggered approach. So we want to start with regions which we have full compliance and you know, regulatory compliance with. So understanding those rules for each region and making sure our product is compatible with them and then creating communities and campaigns that are specific to the target audience in that region is what we are focused on. It is challenging because we are, like any startup, we are, there's a constraint on the resources we have, so we can only do so much at a, at a certain time. But we want to do a fantastic job of wherever, whichever region we start offering our services to, we want our customers to become our ambassadors. So we want to give them a fantastic experience. We want to give them a fantastic rate of return on their investment and build that trust that I spoke about earlier through education and through fairness, and hopefully with that, replicate that success globally. So doing that in a manner that allows us to have that roadmap, but still be nimble and flexible enough to respond to the changed market situation. This market changes every day. This yes. The technology changes every day, right? So it's a constant need to be aware of where you are and how we need to respond to the changes. Well, you may be a startup, but you do have a successful background of being able to educate and make things transparent for a large groups of people. I mean, let's talk about, was it the telecommunications company? You went from a startup with no customers to 25% of New Zealand population, right? And you did that through transparency, education, and fairness, right? Correct. So I think your formula <laughs> is a successful formula. Yeah, I would say so. I think, and this is, it's not like this is something hidden or this is not a secret sauce, but when you apply those principles of educating your customers or being fair to customers and your partners and your employees and yourself, right? When you apply those principles, you build a business where your brand stands to, re to represent trust, it represents openness and transparency, right? And that invariably leads to customers coming along and customers sticking to you and customers then bringing their friends and family into the fold, right? So this is very 
fundamental to how I work and how I operate. And I've, I've tried to apply that to all my pursuits, all my businesses, some with a lot of success, like the unicorn I co-founded in New Zealand, and some have failed, right? But regardless that, those guiding principles remain relevant. And I believe even more so now. Um, I agree. Even more <laughs> so now. How did, you know, tell me about Little Niraj. Like, how did you come to adopt this particular, these principles? Like, was there something in your life that were you just naturally like this? Were there things in your life that caused you to look at this particular aspect of fairness for all that has just developed into your career? So I must give the credit to two sources. <laughs> One is how my parents inculcated these values of, of being fair and being a good person and fairness and transparency comes along with that. But the second entity I would like to give credit to is this marketing company that we engaged for this uh, phone startup company in New Zealand, where they brainstormed with us on the values that we would like to have the brand stand for. And like with all the good things that you, you speak about, they were, you know, you want to do all of them. You want to be fair, you want to be transparent, you want to be smart, you want to be all those things, right? But one thing which stood out was being fair to everybody. And that's sometimes a utopian dream, but you can at least aspire to do that. And the reason why it especially resonated with me was because the trend and the general understanding is for most businesses, they keep their customers first, right? That's the center of the universe. But in the process, they would drive, sometimes they would drive their employees too hard. Sometimes they would not adequately compensate their partners or so there was almost a unhealthy obsession with the customer but the sense of fairness goes beyond just the customer right it needs to be fair to everybody in that ecosystem and it especially resonated with me because if i treat my employees with fairness and respect and my partners with fairness and respect the service that they would offer to my customers would be so compelling and so strong that it would automatically allow me to achieve my objectives, right? So that vision or that when that realization occurred in that session, it made a lot of sense to me and, and I embraced that and I've embraced that throughout my career since. And like I said earlier, it's paid dividends in ways that I could not even imagine uh, yes. Not just financially, but also in terms of the feedback we will get on the social media or I'll give you another example. Our marketing budget for that phone company was one third of the competitors. And we were able to get more from that one third marketing budget because the NPS scores were very high. The net promoter score yes. which basically is a reflection of how happy your customers are with your service. If they're very happy, they turn to, they become your unpaid ambassadors and they bring other people to the fold. If they're neutral, they don't talk about that business so much. If they're angry, they badmouth that business, right? So by having a much smaller marketing budget, just because the NPS was high, we were able to build that network into a very credible, I think one fourth of New Zealand's population uses that. Yes, so, yes and that's story. impressive. I will have to say that I think 
your main ingredient for disruption is fairness. And it is very disruptive in a very harsh world today. Yeah. Yeah. And it yeah. still goes back to the human centric, despite everything being virtual, it goes back to the human centric need to have connection, you know, which opens the door to accessibility for more, education for more, a leveling a playing field for more. And as much as it sounds like a cliche thing, it is very disruptive in today's world. I agree. So tell me what you do outside of La Crisma, if you do anything. Do you have any crazy <laughs> passions? I, like, I think you and your kids like to go camping, right? Yeah, so my daughter is part of the Boy Scout, and she is trying to be an Eagle Scout, which is... Oh, right? I know so, a few Eagle Scouts. That's very hard. Very for hard. Her. So she has to go camping every month. And earlier, we would just let her go with her troop. But last couple of years, especially since the COVID outbreak in 2020, we decided that as a family, let's go out in the nature and camp and so it's become a big obsession with the family. So almost every month, at least once every month, we, we take our camps and we go somewhere and we pitch our tents and have a nice barbecue or whatever. So that's our favorite, favorite outdoor pastime. That's awesome. Pastime, yeah. Is there any particular tradition that you have when you camp? Do you make s'mores? Do you? All of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! Marshmallows, s'mores, you name it, right? I remember that. Yeah. Graham crackers and lots of chocolate. Lots of. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Well, I hope that never stops for your family, even as your kids grow up, because that's fun. Yeah, it is. Naraj, tell people how to get a hold of you. So the best way to get a hold of me is through my email, which is uh, niraj at lucrisma.com, N-E-E-R-A-J at lucrisma.com. You can also reach out to us on LinkedIn and Telegram. We are very active on those channels and Twitter as well. Also, uh, we are going to be starting with AMAs very soon. Ask Me Anything sessions very soon. If you subscribe to our LinkedIn and Twitter channels, uh, you'll get to know about those sessions. And we are now creating awareness of our products and services because we're planning to go live in Q3 this year. So a lot of our campaigns are scheduled along with that timeline, including these AMA sessions. So there you go. Awesome. All right, everyone. Well. Thank you, Niraj. This has been awesome. I've loved this. It was fun. Thank you so much for having me, KJ. I really enjoyed having this chat. Yes, you're welcome. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today, tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with some tidbit from the show. Thank you for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, transfer economics, Well, I should say alter economics and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.